This episode of Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Olsen Salt, Australia's oldest family-owned salt company. It was honestly a little bit emotional lighting the fire in there for the first time. Um, You know, we'd been off for six, seven months. So, you know, stepping back in there and cooking the way that I wanted to cook, you know, getting like, honestly, I I remember (laughs) taking a little video and sending it to the owners and just, you know, feeling super emotional about it. Um, It was, yeah, it was really lovely to get back in there and get those fires lit and, you know get back to what we love doing. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. It was an episode so raw and real, it set the tone of what Deep in the Weeds was to become. A deep dive into the lives of people in food, talking openly about issues and experiences never before vocalised. It was episode two way back in March 2020, and Jackie Chalanor delivered one of the most inspiring and heartbreaking accounts of the impact of COVID-19 on the Australian hospitality sector. A year on, Jackie, you're now the executive chef of Nomad Sydney and Melbourne, and life is a little bit different. Yes, it is indeed. (laughs) It is indeed. It's hard to um, believe what's happened in the last year and there's, there's a lot to talk about. How, how does it feel um, sort of knowing that um, that was about a year ago now that all of this sort of unfolded? Look, I feel like I've lived an entire lifetime in this last 12 months. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, like it's so strange that we sit here and say that that was a year ago that we, you know, I'm sitting in the same spot as we were, you know, 12 months ago and it's just really, really, really crazy to think that, you know, so much has happened in between now and then. We talked about a lot of things, and but one of the things that really took out of the time was the fact that you had to stand down about 50 staff and um, stop the business and with incredible uncertainty about what the future held. Um, life is a little bit different now. How, how many staff do you have over your venues and and, and what is the situation now? Um, back to 60-ish now. Um, wow. So, yeah, more than before, <laughs> which is a good problem to have. Um, Nomad is back at full capacity. Um, the business is doing really well. You know, obviously, there's a lot to make up for. You know, we mm. have the fire as well on you know, on top of COVID. So the business itself has just completely gone through the ringer over the past 18 months. So, you know, there's a lot of trying to claw that back. Um, Mm. But yeah, we're, we're staffed. Um, The business, the restaurant is full and it's busy and it's such a beautiful thing to see after everything that we've gone through um, to be back in our original home and, and seeing it full and hearing the noises and the smells and everything. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty great place to be. We can talk about the Melbourne uh, restaurant shortly, but as you just mentioned, the Sydney restaurant um, was affected by the fire and then also the pandemic, uh, but it's been rebuilt. What was, tell us about the rebuilding of, of Nomad in Sydney. Um, we, the biggest thing for me was getting the kitchen to a 
just bigger, really. Um, <laughs> I think when it was originally designed, nobody kind of anticipated Nomad being the beast that it turned into being. Um, it's We were originally supposed to have like an on-site wine cellar door thing going on and the liquor wow. license was rejected for that. So that space that was kind of allocated for that ended up being turned into seating. Um, so the kitchen was sort of never really given the footprint that it needed to service the space that we had. Um, and so, you know, if post fire, I was sort of given that opportunity to, to create the, the kitchen that we needed in order to kind of do the numbers that we do, which, you know, on a Friday, Saturday night, we're clearing 350 covers a service. Wow. Um, so it's, it's a lot, it's a lot. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, we, Redesigned the kitchen, um, obviously got the space that we needed there. The dining room was given a bit of a spruce up. I think, you know, we'd been open for seven years at the time of the fire. Um, So, you know, we got to kind of tidy that up a little bit. We've got a private dining room now, which is great. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same home. It's the same feel, but it's just been given a little bit of a spruce up and, you know, much needed bit of extra space in the kitchen. How did it feel the first time you cooked in the rebuilt kitchen? It was honestly a little bit emotional lighting the fire in there for the first time. Um, you know, we'd been off for six, seven months. So, you know, stepping back in there and cooking the way that I wanted to cook, um, you know, being at Long Grain was a great temporary solution, but it's not the way that I love cooking so Mm. you know that was a means to an end to kind of keep us going but it wasn't where my heart was when it comes to food so you know getting like honestly i I remember (laughs) taking a little video and sending it to the owners and just you know feeling super emotional about it um it was yeah it was really lovely to get back in there and get those fires lit and you know get back to what we love doing given uh, what's happened over the last year and uh, the changes in your life and also with the restaurant, did you, are you cooking differently in the restaurant now? Do you approach your cookery in a different way? I'm, I'm more confident in myself now. Um, and I suppose we'll probably get to that later, but um, I gave up drinking mid lockdown in like June last year and the changes that that's, kind of produced in me are just insane but it's made me a more confident cook Mm. um so yeah i think the food that we're doing now it's obviously back to its roots with the fire but i'm more proud of what i'm doing um i'm more like i said confident in my style um so yeah i think i think that's really showing on the plate. Um, I'm putting together our order menu change at the moment, which is launching next week. And I'm just like, I'm so stoked with the food. It's all just, it's just, there's layers and there's so much flavor and, you know, it's, I just, I love it. I'm so proud of it. And, you know, the team are really loving it. So yeah, I think that's the difference there with that. Uh, With the order menu launching uh, in the next week or so, can you tell us about a dish or some ingredients you're using that sort of exemplify your cooking at the moment? Um, there is a dish that I love at the moment. We're using these beautiful pink oyster mushrooms from Sticks Farm, um, who are so great to work with. Um, and one of the, like 
mushrooms are just, they're such an incredible thing. And the things that sticks are doing, they're, they're the best mushrooms that I've ever eaten. They're so meaty and just, there's so much flavor. Like you could just be mistaken and think that you're eating meat, just the flavor that's coming out of them. So, um, I'm doing like a, an escabeche sort of style, um, dish with just the grilled mushrooms and a, you know, a really beautiful marinade with slow cooked echelots and garlic and heaps of spices and stuff. So that is probably one of my favorites on the new menu. I just think it's, it's just really simple and it's just, there's nothing, you know, you're not just not, not messing with anything. It's just a really great ingredient, um, allowed to do its thing. And I just, I'm really loving that one at the moment. When we caught up last time a year ago, uh, Melbourne was on the cards, but obviously couldn't open. And um, can you tell us a bit about the Melbourne Nomad and and it's, does it have synergies with Sydney or is it its own identity? Uh, it will be Nomad. Um, obviously, the product that we produce in Sydney, um, I want to carry that theme down there. It'll be a different design. You know, you won't walk in there and think, you know, this is Nomad Sydney. Um, it's, we're in the old Ezard site, so it's underground. Um, yeah, so it'll be like a basement space. Um, I think the design is going to be a lot sort of darker, whereas Nomad Sydney's, you know, those lofty, you know, airy high ceilings and, you know, blonde timber and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's going to be in a very different direction to what Sydney space looks like. Um, but the heart of what we do, which is just, you know, great hospitality and honest cooking with big flavors and, you know, that, that will carry through. Um, there'll obviously be the signature dishes that we sort of can't part with. I will take down to the Nomad Melbourne menu as well. But I do want to, you know, obviously get down there and get stuck into all of these great Victorian producers that I'm sort of researching at the moment. And, you know, just as we do buy locally up here and try and support the New South Wales farmers, I 100% intend to go and do the same thing down there. So I'm really looking forward to just, you know, getting in my car and going for a drive and, and meeting people and growers and producers and seeing what's down there. So, you know, it's a similar concept, same idea behind the food. People will know I'd like, you know, if, if Melbourne locals have anybody has eaten at Nomad in Sydney, I think they'll know that it's our food, but um, I do want to have a different menu in both venues. This episode of Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Olsen Salt, makers of Australian sea salt since 1948. The sea has given my family everything. My family harvests the pristine waters from the Great Australian Bight to make some of the best sea salt in the world. Hi, I'm Alex Olson from Olson Sea Salt. We are the oldest family-owned salt company in Australia. We took over the leases of Pacific Salt in Baruka on the York Peninsula in the early 1960s. And then when the BHP salt leases in Wyala became available, my father took those over as well. If anyone has visited Whale, I know it's a very, very windy place. So the three things you need to make salt are seawater, wind and sun, and you get plenty of all three of those here. 
Wind is a really important factor in making good sea salt because it creates a greater surface area for the sun to evaporate the water, creating brine much faster. We take the seawater from Great Australian Bight and then we store it in something called a primary pond. Then it's fed through a succession of ponds from anywhere between eight months and two years until it gets so heavy in brine and the water is evaporated off, the salt starts to fall out of the water and it's as simple as that. That's all that we do and we wash it in seawater and package it. For more information, go to olsons.com.au. I remember at the time when we spoke a year ago, it was it was very emotional and you've had a pretty turbulent uh, year um, rebuilding the restaurant and so you took some time out as well. What's the year been like for you personally? You briefly mentioned about you stopped drinking. Um, can you tell us about how you've changed in this time? So I obviously had six months off to myself, which was in itself pretty amazing. Um, I kind of decided to just use the time to obviously reset like that. I think I really underestimated how much that the fire and the COVID thing really affected me. Um, and it took me a little while for that to sink in. Um, so I, I switched off for a couple of months. I just kind of didn't really want to interact with anything work related, um, and just try and reset and get myself back on track. Um, and then, you know, things, when things sort of started opening up after that first heavy lockdown, you get a little bit excited and you're kind of out and about and, um, going out and seeing friends. And, you know, I had one night in particular that was just, it was quite a bender. Um, and I did some pretty stupid shit. Um, and I just woke up the next day and I just thought to myself, you got to stop doing this dude. Um, and I ended up, you know, it was, it was horrible. Like I, cause I think, you know, in the lead up to that, I'd been spending a lot of time. I joined the gym and I was exercising heaps and I was eating well and I was feeling, starting to feel really good and, you know, kind of getting my body and my brain back in line. And I just, I felt so rubbish and I was in bed depressed for two days because of the way that I behaved and all the money that I spent. And I just, I just, I remember sitting on the couch and I started crying and it was just this weird, like cathartic moment. And I just said, I'm not going to drink anymore. I, I don't wow. want to do it anymore. And I, you know, I've thrown it around over the years, but I'd never really wanted to do it or seen the need to do it. Um, and I told my family, I told my mom and my dad and my sister. Um, I think I did that for accountability and to make it real. Um, I told my friends, like my close circle of friends who I knew that would be supportive of it. And I stopped. And, you know, I think I took me a long time to realize that I was an alcoholic and I never, I always avoided the thought of it because I never drank on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I never, you know, I wouldn't come home and have a drink, but when I did drink, I would binge drink and I, you know, I didn't know when to stop. I didn't know how to stop. I couldn't remember the last time that I drank without blacking out. Um, and I, I'd probably do that on a weekly basis. 
And, you know, I didn't ever put two and two together and think just, you know, that that's also alcohol abuse just because you're not doing it every day. It's just a different form of alcohol abuse. And I, I never owned up to that for myself. Um, and I finally kind of saw the light and accepted that there was a problem with the way that I drank. Um, and, and I just, I knew I needed to stop. Um, I feel a little bit emotional talking about this. Like I kind of haven't really had a real conversation about this since I stopped. Um, you mentioned the positive impacts that, that, that realization and decision has made on your life. Can you, can you tell us about the changes that happened as a result of that massive decision? You know what? Like I thought that I just really sort of figured that I'd just feel healthier. And obviously that's a huge benefit of not drinking. I thought I'd save some money and, you know, that sort of stuff, but, um, which has been a great positive side effect out of it also. But, um, like mentally, emotionally has been the biggest, most radical change that I've noticed since I've stopped. Like I am so much more confident. Um, it's funny that the thing that you do to, to almost boost your confidence in social situations and stuff gradually erodes at it over time. Um, I didn't think that I could go to an event and be engaging or funny or anything like that without alcohol. So, you know, you'd, you'd have a drink before you went to, you know, the good food guide awards or, you know, those industry things where there was just, I like, I was always so conscious of being in those things and being boring or not being fun that I drink myself to the point of stupidity. Um, so realizing that I can engage with people on a better level without alcohol was such a revelation to me and boosted my confidence in ways that I just can't even fathom. Um, like I said, it's changed the way that I cook in that I'm a lot more confident in myself and my food and the way that I cook. Um, I think I've always sort of been a little bit conscious of the fact that over the years, I like, I'm a control freak. Um, I've always sort of, I've always sort of progressed in kitchens quicker than what I thought I should have. Um, I always end up being a boss and I never get to spend like in my, in my years of cooking the 15 years, I didn't spend, I don't think I spent enough time on the pans learning technique and all that sort of stuff. I know I'm great with flavors. Um, but I've always felt conscious of the fact that that technique side of thing isn't my strong point. And I feel like that's always kind of pulled me back a little bit. And I sort of just got to the point where I realized, you know what, you don't like the way that I cook. I've never, you know, I've never been a heavy technique kind of chef. And I just, just knowing that I am confident in the way that I can create a dish and the ideas that I have and the way that I can balance the flavors and, Focusing on what I'm strong with and knowing that that's enough has just been something that, it, you know, I being clouded with booze and insecurities and all that sort of stuff really held me back in that sense. Um, so it's nice to be in a place where you're just accepting of what you do and your strengths and playing on that. And, yeah, it's, it's a really nice place to be. The drinking uh, culture and um, alcoholism is quite akin to the hospitality mm -hmm. sector. 
Um, do you think that, that that is changing? Do you think the culture of booze in, in the industry has changed? I, I, I don't know. Um, I'd like to hope it does or it is. I think one of the things that allowed me to continue to behave the way that I did for so long was the culture. Um, I, you know, I can't remember how many times you would wake up after a big night out and, you know, you'd speak to your, your friends who obviously are in the industry as well. And you'd be like, what happened last night? Like, I don't remember. Did I make a knob out of myself? And they'd be like, oh, don't worry about it. It's hospo. It is what it is. And we need to stop using our jobs of this industry as an excuse or a, a, a get out of jail free card for doing that because it's not okay. It's totally not. And, you know, my family and my friends would see that from the outside and I would constantly be trying to say to them, you don't understand, you know, when you'd come home at six in the morning and pass out on the front lawn, like, and my poor parents and all the shit that they went through worrying about me for all those years and the stuff like, you know, the situations I get myself into, I would always just be trying to explain it away. You don't understand hospitality. It's different to every other career. And while it is, yes, totally different. And the stress in our industry is astronomical. It's not a good enough reason to disrespect ourselves like that. And not like what I've realized now is that I thought I was living my life to the fullest and I wasn't. And it's only taken me to step outside it to see it that You know, it's like, I think we think that this is the be all and end all and it's fun. And when you can see what life is like outside of that, it's totally different. So I think because I haven't really been in that culture for what was nine months the other week that, you know, since I've stopped, um, I'm not seeing it as much, but I would like to hope that it changes or it stops or just to be a voice to say to people, it's not okay. Like hospitality is not a reason to do that. And we need to find better, more productive and sustainable ways to manage and deal with our stress because it's not healthy and it doesn't help. How has cooking helped you through this process of the last nine months? Um, I found it really easy throughout lockdown because I didn't have stress. Um, going back to work really made it difficult to be honest. So like work, I hadn't craved a drink and I should say I haven't been a hundred percent cold Turkey. Like I had a glass of champagne on news. I probably had in nine months, five glasses of wine, which I would probably would have drunk in an hour, um, <laughs> pre giving up. Um, but going back to work made me want to drink again. And it, and I think that's when I realized that I did have a problem because that instant stress relief that, you know, knocking back a Negroni or a glass of wine would give you, I was craving that. And I didn't know how to get that without drinking. And so, yeah, cooking brought it back for me. Um, and that was a big shock. So, you know, I ended up having panic attacks over Christmas. Um, and it just really sent me into a black hole because I just didn't know how to address that kind of heavy stress without 
drinking as my release. And I realized that, you know, that I'd been doing it for the last 15 years in kitchens and using that as my crutch. Um, so that was, you know, that was, I think when I realized that I actually did have a problem. Um, and it, you know, so cooking did contribute and it did make it harder for me to give up. Um, but I didn't want to fall back into that hole. Um, and you know, I thought, I, that I could have a, you know, I thought that, because people keep saying to me, when are you going to start drinking again? Can't you just have a glass, blah, blah, blah. It's funny how much, how invested other people are in, are, are in, sorry, in the decision when it actually really has nothing to do with them. Um, so I kind of, you know, I went away in January and I kind of thought I was on holidays. I'll have a few glasses that, you know, there wasn't direct pressure, but it was still kind of there. Do you want to have a glass of bubbles? Do you want to have that? And I did. And you know what? I instantly regretted it. I felt so dusty the next day after two glasses of wine. Um, and I just was like, I'd never want to feel this feeling again. I just don't. So it was after that little trip to Byron that I did, that I decided that I don't want to go back to doing it ever. I don't want to go back to just having a glass. I don't want to go back to it at all. I, I like my life better without it. So, yeah. You, so, you mentioned the confidence that you now have in your cooking and the change that it's had on you personally. Um, what's the relationship like now in regards to your brigade and running the kitchen? Does it feel different? Um, I, I feel different in the sense that I'm – happier so in my exec role I'm you know I'm not kind of dealing with the day-to-day stresses of kitchen management like I've been doing that job for nearly eight years the same thing day in and day out um without progressing and you know that's the same thing like calling that pass every night is just madness and you know, that I think there was that constant buildup of stress that was making me angry all the time. Um, so the fact that I've been pulled out of that and actually, you know, finally given the role that I've been sort of after for so many years, that I've got that release now that, you know, I feel like I'm freed from that a little bit and, I've, and am, sorry, and are progressing. I think, you know, I spent so much time you know, when you are a boss, you're focusing on your team always. And I think that I've sort of always been a bit of an afterthought. You're always stressing about, you know, keeping them engaged and, and teaching them and, and everything like that and progressing their careers that you sort of lose sight of what you need to be at your best as a head chef or a leader. Um, and I did. And, you know, I don't think I was at my best. So, now that I'm removed from that, um, I feel, I mean, I hope I'm better at my job, um, but I'm feeling a lot more creative. I'm feeling a lot more level, um, and happier. And I'm hoping that, you know, that in turn move, like is something that passes on to my team and is going to keep them inspired and engaged and excited about food and the menus and all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, look, I hope it has made a difference. I certainly feel better at my job um, and more excited about being in there. I think, you know, when 
someone is unhappy in their role, you can feel it. It's a tangible thing and it does infect the rest of the team. So, you know, I'm hoping that now that I am really excited to be there, that that is something that also rubs off on the guys. You've got many friends in the industry and uh, everyone's had a really tough and strange year. Has Has there been anyone in the industry that has inspired you or you've been impressed by how they've dealt with the circumstances? <sighs> Everyone. <laughs> Everyone's, I think, like, I just, just seeing the way that everybody pivoted so quickly to keep businesses afloat, um, I, you know, I, I just think, you know, as a whole, it was such an impressive things to, thing to see the way the the way that everybody just jumped so quickly for different offerings and you know they were doing what they needed to do to keep their businesses alive um and i think the benefit out of that is that we've all seen that there are different possibilities and alternative revenue streams and ways that we can kind of keep things ticking over um so yeah i don't I don't know if there was really anyone in particular to single out. I just like, I feel like I just kind of watched it from my couch really um, over the six months, but just, yeah, I was just impressed at everybody who did stay open, who kept their businesses alive um, and were just at it for six months in the trenches. So you've got the new role and uh, the, the two venues Um Obviously, Melbourne is, is going to be something um, new and exciting, but what are you excited about for the next year with um, your role in the industry? I'm excited about obviously doing something different. Like I said, I, you know, Nomad has been where I've been at for the last eight years. So stepping into a new space is really exciting for me. Um, it's a new challenge. Um, I'm excited about learning new things. Um, you know, I've always been really heavily food focused or only food focused. So learning, um, back of house and, and sort of more of the money side of things is a skill that I think is really important for me to have. And, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited about exercising my brain in different ways to what I've always done. I feel stale. Um, so that's really exciting for me. Um, moving, I've always lived in Sydney my entire life. So up in and packing up and going somewhere else is something that I'm really excited about. And I think old me wouldn't have been excited about it. I was a bit of a creature of habit. So new things excite me now. Meeting new people excites me now. Talking and engaging with new people is something that I really like doing now, which I never used to. Um, So yeah, I just, I'm excited for new and change and personal growth and just, you know, I've, started this journey and I'm so happy and it's I, it's just this better me that I just kind of want to continue to explore and build on so there's a lot going on and so yeah that's very optimistic here <laughs> <laughs> well Jackie you delivered the most extraordinary episode of deep in the weeds a year ago and uh, you've done it again and which even got me emotional again um, your openness openness is bloody inspiring Um, good luck with Melbourne and Sydney and so great to hear 
the path that you're on. It's um, it's amazing stuff. Thank you. Uh, please keep in touch. Thank you. And I reckon we will catch up again soon. Yeah. Well, thank you. It was really nice to you know to talk about it, and if if that can help someone else, or you know, if people, if anybody wants to reach out and talk about it, like please do because. I don't think I had that and I don't, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't there. And I, you know, if anybody is thinking Mm. about it or wants to make a change or thinks it's too hard to do it, like honestly reach out because I'd be happy to, to be a support system or talk them through it or anything like that. So yeah, I think if I can help someone else by being honest about it, then that's a good place to be. Jackie, you're amazing. Thank you again. And um, thank you. Hopefully, catch up with you soon. Yes, definitely. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers, and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.